The rabbi told you the mezuzah would protect your home and all who live inside it. You trust him. It's not just him. The rabbis of the Talmud take this security feature of the mezuzah as a ex- uniquely distinctive fact of Jewish life. Everywhere else in the world, they say, the king sleeps in bed while his servants stand by the door to guard him. But with us Jews, it's the inverse. We sleep and our king stands guard at the door. So you trust them too. You just want to understand the mechanics. How on earth does a parchment scroll with Hebrew inscriptions increase your personal safety? Fair question. You'll be glad to know you're not the first to ask. It's a classic. So let's take a deep dive into how the issue is treated by the luminaries of the science known as halacha, meaning what Jews do and why they do it. Now, to approach this scientifically, let's start with a hypothesis. Intuitively, it seems there could be only two possible explanations. The first one is the parchment and ink hypothesis, which is that Jews believe that a particular sequence of letters on parchment has special powers to ward off spooks, unwanted guests, and IRS auditors. Mezuzahs have that sequence down to the T, or the Aleph. Okay, that's one. The other hypothesis is the extrinsic reward hypothesis, which is the Torah promises that in return for doing this mitzvah, you get on the divine protection list. In other words, the mezuzah is not doing the protection. God is. Only that he's doing it because you put the mezuzah there. So you may have other suggestions, but I would guess that they all fall within one of these two categories of intrinsic or extrinsic mechanisms. Okay, so now let's examine the data. Fortunately, we don't have to look too far to knock off the PNI, parchment and ink hypothesis. Rabbi Dr. Moshe bin Maimon, also known as Maimonides, but known to insiders as Rambam, 12th century Egypt, already handled that for us in his comprehensive codification of the gamut of Jewish law, sorry, of Jewish law known as Mishnah Torah. He brings us right into ground zero of the issue. The Rambam talks about people who figure they can upgrade their mezuzah with some add-ons. A mezuzah contains two paragraphs from the Torah. One beginning, listen up Israel, that God who is our God, that God is one, also known as Hero Israel, or in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael. And the other paragraph beginning, and if you listen, Vahaya Im Shamoah. Both those paragraphs make mention of the mezuzah, as we'll discuss later. Everything is handwritten in Hebrew letters with extreme precision by a qualified scribe. So these people figure, that's good, but you can always beef up security, right? So let's enhance it a little bit by inserting a few angel names in key places. After all, angels also protect people. Rambam says no. First of all, playing around with a prescribed text means you're not following instructions. And if you're not following instructions, in what way is this a mitzvah? Which means a mitzvah means a divine instruction. But beyond that, Rambam has some rather harsh words for these people. I'm quoting, Those, however, who write the names of angels, other sacred names, verses, or forms, 
on the inside of the scroll are among those who do not have a portion in the world to come. These fools, not only have they lost out on the mitzvah, they made a great mitzvah, the unity of God and our labor of love for him, into an amulet for their own benefit. They imagine in their foolishness that this is something that benefits a person in some vain worldly way. End of quote. Now, why is the Rambam so upset with these people? Obviously, it's not because they're doing the mitzvah with their own personal benefit in mind. Sure, it's optimal to do the right thing just because it's the right thing, like he writes elsewhere. But he writes that with a caveat. You can't start people off that way. First, you teach them to do mitzvahs for their benefit, and then gradually they'll come to do it for better reasons and perhaps eventually just because it's the right thing to do. Okay, that's out of the way. Neither could he be attacking the whole mezuzah protection bundle, since we've seen before the rabbis of the Talmud state this clearly. And indeed, the Rambam writes immediately before these words. He writes, quote, It's a common custom to write God's name, Shin Dalid Yud, on the outer side of a mezuzah scroll, opposite the empty space left between the two passages. There's no difficulty in this, since... It's on the outer side. So, end of quote. Why that particular name, the Shin Dalid Yud name? The Zohar explains that this name describes God as our protector. Others explain that it's an, an acronym for Shomer Daltot Yisrael, or Shomer Dirot Yisrael, which means the guardian of Jewish doorways, or the guardian of Jewish dwellings, whichever one you take. So, it's that name is all about protection, and that's written on the outside of the apartment. So it's not the protection thing he has a problem with. Rather, he's criticizing these people for believing that the mezuzah protects us in, like he says, some vain worldly way. Meaning, mezuzah protection mechanics are not about inscriptions on the parchment. Adding in a little amperage of your own doesn't just jam the circuits. It represents a complete misunderstanding of the lofty dynamics involved. Something very big is happening here, and we humans should just do our job as per spec and back off. Well, what could that dynamic be? Must be the extrinsic reward hypothesis, right? And hey, that seems to snap right in with the inverted protocol description of the king protecting his subject, as well as this description from the Zohar, quote, Someone builds a home. God tells the someone, You write my name on your doorpost, and I'll sit outside and protect you. It's just like in Egypt, when he protected those who followed his instructions to put blood on the doorway. End of quote. Okay, but... Not so fast. The text inscribed on the mezuzah scroll says something quite different. The text itself, on the mezuzah scroll, it says, quote, And you shall write them, meaning these words, upon the doorpost of your house and upon your gates, in order that your days and the days of your children will be many. So yes, there's a reward for following this instruction, but it's not protection. It's longevity. Could it be that the rabbis are saying that mezuzahs also protect? Maybe you live long because you are protected? But no, it's clear that the tradition is that this is not a reward. It's just something that mezuzahs do. 
And here's the evidence, case by case. Case one, the rental situation. You just moved into your rental home in Jerusalem, fully furnished, but no mezuzahs. You tell the owner, hey, you're Jewish, right? Why no mezuzahs? Your Jewish landlord answers, that's your problem. You answer, oh yeah, doesn't it say, and you should write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates? I may be living here, but it's still your house. <laughs> your argument is more robust than you might imagine. It has precedent. The Torah also says to put seat on the corners of your four-cornered garment. So the rules are, if you borrow a garment, you don't need to add tzitzit. It's not your garment. After 30 days, we tell you to tie those tzitzit on, but that's only because otherwise people are going to say, what's that guy walking around with a four-cornered garment and no tzitzit? Don't tell me it's borrowed. He's been wearing it for over a month now. Um, so, But otherwise, it has to be your garment. So should be the same thing here with mezuzahs, right? If it's not your home because you're renting, so you shouldn't need to put up mezuzahs. And after 30 days, still no reason. Everyone knows that people rent homes for years, even in a lifetime. Proof that if anyone must purchase those mezuzahs and put them up, it's not you, right? Wrong. The Talmud rules that the landlord is correct. This is your problem, not his. Um, as the rabbis known as the Tosafot, which is medieval France and Germany, later explained, a mezuzah is made for protection. So it doesn't make sense to say, it's not my house, I don't need a mezuzah, you're living there, you need protection. Must be then that when the Torah says, on the doorposts of your house, it means something else. And indeed, the Talmud tells it, it means that the mezuzah has to be on your right as you enter, not as you leave. It's a play on words that only makes sense in Hebrew, but it works. So, strong language, right? A mezuzah is made for protection. Not that you get protection as a reward, but that's what it does. It's a protective device, intrinsically. So are the Tosafot rabbis going head-to-head -head with Rabbi Dr. Rambam? After all, that's perfectly kosher. 11th century French halachists are allowed to disagree with 12th century Egyptian ones, and they often do. Maybe then... What we have here is one of those classic divisions of halakhic opinions into two camps, the extrinsic reward of Maimonidian, sorry, Maimonidian, uh, the Rambam side, and the intrinsic protection of Tosafot. Neat, but it doesn't fly. As we see from case two, the thick doorway. You've just moved into a palatial mansion in Boca Raton and that will wow your friends and business associates to the ceiling problem. The walls are two feet thick at places and that makes an issue with your mezuzahs. Where do you place them? On the inner end of the doorway? The outer end? Maybe the middle? You make a video call to your rabbi and provide him a walkthrough. He instructs you to place the mezuzah on the outer end of the entrance. Okay, you say, but why? Jews always ask why. Why? Because how else are you going to learn? So he explains that it's actually a discussion in the Talmud. And the conclusion is, as he said, the mezuzah goes on the entrance end. Why? Well, the Talmud provides two lines of reasoning. One, so that you meet the mezuzah as soon as you enter. Two, that of Rav Chenina from Surah. He says, so that more space gets protected. 
<laughs> now, there's no way you can fit that into the extrinsic divine reward hypothesis. Like, let's say you didn't hear the rabbi write and place the mezuzah at the inner end of the doorway, and then you actually dropped your gold diamond-studded Fitbit at the door in the doorway. By the time you realize it's gone, if it's the mezuzah doing the protecting, no point complaining. But but if it's God protecting because you did the mezuzah thing, so what does he say? Sorry, that area is not covered by your policy. Like, really? Now, Rambam expresses everything he says on the Talmud. He never will argue with it. Rules are rabbis of the Talmud can argue with other rabbis of the Talmud. Rabbis post-Talmud cannot. So Rambam certainly is going to take any explanation of a halacha by a Talmud rabbi very seriously. If one of them says that by placing a mezuzah further out, you'll extend protection outward, then the mezuzah must have inherent protection properties. And that is undoubtedly how he has been understood in posterity through the ages. The Rambam has been understood. As we see from case three, the many voices of Halacha Cafe, it's the Arbiturim, the Arbiturim, the Arbiturim is an intriguing place to hang out. I say like place rather than book, because that far better describes how it feels to be absorbed in its study, much like taking part in a vibrant discussion in a Talmudic cafe. The cafe has a facilitator, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, Spain circa 1300, son of one of the all-time great halakhic authorities known as the Rosh. Belonging to a generation that felt the need to preserve the scholarship of a world they realized couldn't last much longer, Rabbi Yaakov created a kind of encyclopedia of the spectrum of opinions on each practical case of practical halacha. He called its four volumes Arba Turim, means four rows, thereby earning for himself in his book the nickname the Tor. Rabbi Yaakov, the Tor, died in abject poverty, but his work was considered so vital. It was the first book to be published in Southeast Europe and the Near East, Constantinople, 1493, the year after the Spanish expulsion. A, a century passed, and along came Rabbi Yosef Cairo's Ottoman Empire is and in Israel, 16th century, and Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote voluminous notes on one side of the page. He called it Bet Yosef, Yosef's house. And now that's how he's been known for generations since, the Bet Yosef. Another hundred years passed, and Rabbi Yol Circus in Poland, the 17th century, seeing the other side of the page was still vacant, built his own house over there, often taking Rabbi Cairo to task. He titled his work Bayit Chadash, a new house, earning for himself an unforgettable title via acronym, the Bach. Rabbi Moshe Isserlis and Joshua Falk, despite their chronological precedents, had to resort to staking out the bottom of the page. Finding no space remaining, future scholars were forced to claim their real estate on Yosef Cairo's abridged version of his own notes titled Shulchan Aruch, uh, means a set table. In one of the great miracles of Jewish history, more and more rabbis kept finding space to squeeze in their voices over the ages, amounting to a counterpoint of multifarious voices resembling a dozen fugues by the other Bach in tandem. 
The result is an accumulated venture that effectively flattens time into a kind of geographical space where everyone is alive at once. To this day, we study halacha by winding our way along the Torah Shulchan Aruch highway, extending from Moses to the Talmud and the Torah right up to the present day. Indeed, in Jewish scholarship, we never say, so-and-so said. It's Rambam says. The Torah says. Yes, but the Bach says. So here are some of the rules of discussion in this cafe. One is rigor. You must provide textual support, satisfactory reasoning, or precedent for any statement you make. Two, everyone speaks in order of their placement on a timeline stretching over hundreds of years. And three, you only get to speak once and cannot respond to your detractors. Because because by then you're already up in the heavenly academy and we can't hear you too well from down here. Indeed, a lot of the labor of studying, or rather participating in this work, is trying to guess exactly what these great minds might be responding from up there. So now let's get to the cafe consensus. So we're at the cafe, and Rabbi Yaakov, the tour, is introducing the halachot of mezuzah. As he speaks, the Bet Yosef, the Bach et al, call out references for every phrase, grounding it all back to Mishnah and Talmud. But in the midst of his words, the Torah slips in a kind of puzzle to unravel, not in his content, but in his format. The Torah begins by explaining the weightiness of this mitzvah. Whenever we enter or exit our homes, it reawakens our awareness of God's oneness, ensuring we will keep all his mitzvahs wherever we go. It's so important, he says, Not only does the Torah promise us that your days and the days of your children will be increased as a reward for this mitzvah, but, I'm quoting, yet greater than this, your house is protected by it. And then he goes on to explain that this is the reason the mezuzah is placed near the outer end of a thick doorway for greater protection, as we explained above. Nevertheless, he admonishes us, don't do this mitzvah for its protection. Do it because... It is a mitzvah given us by the Creator. Nice. But a hush is already drawn over the cafe. The sages have fallen into deep thought. They are pondering those words. Yet greater than this. Yet greater. Yet greater? Really? Obviously, this is one of those enigmatic nuances of a sage in which deep wisdom is sequestered. In what way could the benefits of a household protection exceed long life? Isn't one included in the other? Anyone guaranteeing you long life is going to have to protect you, right? As a matter of course, the Bet Yosef is first to unravel the enigma. For one thing, he says, when someone lives a long life due to their mitzvahs, yes, a miracle has occurred, but no one recognizes it as such. But when a home is protected by a mezuzah, open miracles occur. And for another, he continues, it inverts the natural protocol. And he goes on to cite the Talmudic statement about kings, servants, beds, and doorways that we mentioned at the beginning of this article. The Bach has been listening attentively, nodding his head in approval. Yes, yes, he says. But there is something yet more significant. With all mitzvahs, he says, including mezuzah, you're guaranteed some sort of kickback in this world or the world to come. With the mezuzah, you benefit directly from the mitzvah itself. Through it, 
Your household is protected from all sorts of dangers in addition to the reward of long life for you and your children. So you benefit directly from the mitzvah itself. Could you say intrinsic in any clearer words? So is Rabbi Circus the Bach, also parting ways with the esteemed Rambam on this? Uh, and how about the Torah, who opens the discussion of halachot and mezuzah with the reasoning behind the thick doorway rule? Do we hear Rambam's voice based in, raised in protest from the heavenly academy? Quite unlikely. The Torah himself later cites Rambam's sharp words about the angel name inscribers verbatim in a final ruling. After he quotes his father, the Rosh, who is saying just about the same thing. Okay, but the Rambam blasts these fools who treat the mezuzah like an amulet and, quote, that benefits a person in some vain, worldly way. If the mezuzah is a mitzvah which you, from which you benefit directly, as the Bach explained, what then is Rambam's issue with these people? Obviously, Rambam doesn't mean that a mezuzah doesn't provide protection. He means it doesn't protect you the way worldly things protect. It's not about some mysterious power of words on parchment. So what power is it then? Obviously, it has to do with the mezuzah being a mitzvah. Proof positive. If the mezuzah is written by someone who is not a shareholder in the whole mitzvah operation, such as a non-Jew or a Jew who just denies the whole thing, it doesn't matter how perfect and exquisite a mezuzah he has written. It's simply not a mezuzah. Provide zilch. To provide protection, it must be a kosher mezuzah written by a Jew in order to perform this mitzvah. So it's not the parchment and ink. It's the mitzvah. Perhaps the mitzvah that you are accomplishing by having a mezuzah at your door is protecting you, like that mitzvah of yours is somehow perpetually hovering over that doorway in the spot where that mezuzah hangs. But no, that doesn't work either. It doesn't work as we see from case four. Monobaz. Monobaz and the mezuzah staff. Monobaz II was king of Ariabin, a vassal state of the Persian Empire. After his mother, Queen Helena, converted to Judaism, he followed suit. The Talmud tells several anecdotes describing the two. Here's one. It seems that in Mishnaic times, it was common for a traveler to make a hollow in his staff to hold a mezuzah. Of course, there's no mitzvah in doing so. In fact, Rav Yehuda quite cites the Babylonian sage Shmuel as teaching you that if you leave such a staff at the doorway, instead of affixing the mezuzah directly, you haven't accomplished a thing. Indeed, since the house is technically without a mezuzah, Shmuel said, you're endangering yourself instead of protecting yourself. Okay, upon providing this teaching, the Talmud goes on to report that Manobaz did exactly what Shmuel was talking about, but not for his house. Whenever traveling, he would have his servants pace their mezuzah staffs at the door of the inn where they would stay on the road. Of course, he didn't do this for the mitzvah. If you're staying in a place for less than 30 days, you don't need a mezuzah because it's not considered your home. But Manobaz still felt they should have some souvenir of the mitzvah with them. Now, Monobaz could do as Monobaz pleases. The interesting thing here is this mezuzah staff. What's up with that? It's reported elsewhere, too. And nobody criticizes it as, like, an, what a waste of a good mezuzah, or plain superstitious. Many serious scholars of Torah kept a mezuzah on their desk. The Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson, advised people to keep a mezuzah in their car. 
So here you have an instance where there's no mitzvah involved, and yet some sort of protection is expected. Okay, so again, it's not a reward thing for doing the mitzvah. It's intrinsic. But here you can't even say that the mitzvah mitzvah is protecting you because because there's no mitzvah. Okay, uh, yet another wrench in the works. Case 5, Artaban's priceless gift. Artaban V was the last emperor of the ancient Persian Empire. He was also friendly with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, head of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he was also a very wealthy man. The Talmud tells that Artaban sent a gift to Rabbi Yehuda, a priceless gem, with a challenge. Let's see if you can send me something just as valuable as this. So, in return, Rabbi Yehuda sent Artaban a mezuzah. Artaban didn't take that so well. He responded with a sharp message to Rabbi Yehuda. I sent you a priceless gem, and you send me back something I could buy with a few pennies. Rabbi Yehuda messaged back, All that I have, and all that you have, does not equal the worth of this item. And furthermore, the jewel you sent me requires that I guard it, whereas the mezuzah I sent you will guard and protect you. As it's written, wherever you go, it will guide you. At that point, Artaban's princess fell ill. None of the doctors were able to help until Artaban affixed the mezuzah to the door and immediately his daughter's health improved. Now, this is not Monobaz. No one claims Artaban ever converted. He was likely practicing some sort of Mithraic Zoroastrianism with a mix of Babylonian and Greek gods thrown in for good luck. Certainly, he was not performing a mitzvah by placing a mezuzah on his door. So, If it's not the ink and parchment of the mezuzah, and it doesn't even require a mitzvah, then what is doing the protecting? The problem is, we're stuck in a paradigm. We're thinking of the mezuzah and the mitzvah as two separate entities. But in truth, they've become one. They become one as soon as the mezuzah is written for the purpose of doing a mitzvah. So, in Talmudic lingo, we call that a shel mitzvah, literally meaning the object of a mitzvah, as opposed to the subject who did the mitzvah. The implication, it's no longer an inert physical object on a doorpost or in a staff or a glove compartment. That thing is now a mitzvah. Specifically, there are gradations of Hefzil Mitzvah, mitzvah such as a mezuzah that contains one of the divine names or some words of Torah called a Hefzil Kedusha. can't be thrown in the trash or brought into an unclean place. And that becomes relevant near the end of, a, of the article. But for now, the point is a thing that's a mitzvah. Let, let's make this real concrete. A Jew sits down and writes a mezuzah as per spec, intending it to be used on some Jewish doorpost. That scroll is a chefsa shel mitzvah or shel kedusha. It could protect even Artaban. Same person writes same mezuzah, but when you ask him what he's doing, he answers, just practicing. It's just a scroll. Will it provide protection? No. So, so is it the mitzvah that protects or is it the scroll? They're one and the same. And that answers everything which is what the Rambam meant. It's not the words on the scroll that protect, it's the mitzvah quality of those words. 
Yeah, I know it sounds nuts. A mitzvah is an action you do. A mezuzah is an object you do it with. How does action and object, verb and noun, energy and matter become one? Well, that's precisely what a mitzvah is all about. It's what Torah is all about. The union of opposites of the inner life of a thing with its outer manifestation. As Rambam writes, the Torah was given to make peace in the world. Torah unveils a reality in which nothing is extrinsic. God is not extrinsic to the world, and any object in the world is not extrinsic to him. The whole paradigm of hypotheses, both our hypotheses, breaks down. Or, as the Medrash describes the event at Sinai, when Torah entered world space, describes it with a parallel from ancient Mediterranean geopolitics. It goes like this, quoting, there was a king who decreed that the inhabitants of Rome should not go down to Syria, and the inhabitants of Syria could not go up to Rome. So too, when God created the world, he decreed the heavens are the heavens for God, and the earth he gave to human beings. But then, when he gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, he annulled the decree. He said, lower things, meaning physical stuff, can ascend above. And the higher stuff, like spiritual heaven stuff, can descend below. And he said, and I will go first. And so it says, and God descended upon Mount Sinai. And then later, and to Moses he said, ascend to God. So the Medrash concludes, look, God can do whatever he pleases. As it says, all that God desires he does in the heavens and on the earth. So the Medrash is reading this event of God descending upon the mountain. I mean, what on earth does that really mean? And Moses ascending the mountain as a major shift in the dynamics of our reality. And that it's only really possible because God can do whatever he wants. And it's saying that this is what Torah is all about. For the inner reality of his existence was heaven, the, uh, and the outer reality, earth, to fuse as one whenever and wherever a mitzvah is involved. Like with that mezuzah on your doorpost, it's a physical object, but it's also a divine dynamic. Because really everything is a divine dynamic. Everything is regenerated at every moment by divine will. Just that there's some obstruction to us seeing it that way. The mitzvah removes that obstruction so that the physical object can now behave as the divine dynamic it truly is. And it does that by affording you protection. The same with every Hefza Shom Mitzvah. Each one channels its particular unobstructed divine energy into the world in a very practical way. For example, money you give to help others, also known as charity. That money, as long as it's kosher money, meaning not stolen money, becomes divine money. It channels true wealth and prosperity into the lives of those who receive it, those involved with getting it there, and especially the one who gave it. Or the tefillin that Jewish men wear on their heads and arms every morning at prayer time. They have their unique effect connecting the mind and the heart. Or the candles that Jewish women light before Shabbat. They shine peace into the home. The point is, these are not just objects. They're post-Sinai objects, returned into harmony with their inner life. The same applies to you, the person doing the mitzvah. 
when you immerse your head in understanding Torah, your brain is the mitzvah object. So at that time, it becomes a divine brain. A transformation takes place that leaves a permanent impression. The same with your heart, which is the hefts of the mitzvah of prayer, or your mouth when you recite or explain words of Torah out loud. It's especially so when you give of your hard-earned money to a good cause, because then your entire body is engaged in the mitzvah, often to the very core. That's why we call it a Torah of life, because it brings everything in your world alive. So now one more case to end off with, the case of a negative presence of mezuzah in prison. So this this was one a story that takes the power of a mitzvah way out of the box. What if you're in a place that doesn't require a mezuzah, like a prison, or a place where the halacha does not permit you to bring a mezuzah, like a lavatory? Can you still bring the effect of the mezuzah into such a place? Well, it's been done. It's a story in St. Petersburg, Russia, a city of long and dark shadows, not only because it lies only a few degrees below the Arctic Circle, but also on account of the stories of terror certain of its buildings contain. Cross over the south bank of the Neva River, Anitiane Bridge, drive one short block, and you'll find yourself at a complex of buildings that once struck more dread into the hearts of brave men than the inferno of hell. The detention center on Spilano Street contains 317 solitary cells, 68 mass cells, many punishment cells, and a prison hospital assigned for 700 prisoners. In years past, there were occasions when the firing squad worked through the night. The night of June 14th to 15th, 1927, was one such occasion. That evening, on the pretext of an assassination abroad, the secret police were granted free reign for several hours to arrest, detain, and execute whoever they expected of insurgent activity. Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, the sixth in line in the chain of Chabad rabbis, was on their list, simply because he refused to cease his religious leadership and activism, which was an act that was deemed by the Bolshevik officials to be counter-revolutionary. Indeed, this was his seventh arrest yet unquestionably is most perilous. He was taken from his home at 2.45 a.m. and driven a few short blocks to Spileno. The story of his brutal interrogation and the series of miraculous and heroic interventions by which he eventually was released is well known. The rabbi proved no easy customer for his interrogators. From the start, he resolved not to assign them any authority over him. He responded to their questions only in Yiddish and ignored all their commands. In his own words, I took a tough stance with them, and it cost me my health. The word dignity doesn't do justice. Upon entering the interrogation chamber, he stood tall and proclaimed in calculated astonishment, This is the first time I enter a home and no one gets up from their seat. Do you know where you are? they asked him. Certainly, he replied. I am in a place that does not require a mezuzah, similar to a lavatory or a barn. So, as you can imagine, as much as they tried by older demonic means, there was no forced confession forthcoming. But the mention 
of the mezuzah requires some pause. What exactly was the rabbi's point? If these henchmen truly had no significance for him, why bother noting how unimpressed he was with the environs in which they met? What need was there to instruct such people in the laws of mezuzah? So the rabbi's son-in-law, the rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, asked these same questions and provided the following interpretation. True, you can't nail up a mezuzah in a prison. A mezuzah belongs on the door of your home or of any place in which you wish to dwell. The entire meaning of a prison, on the other hand, is that it is a place where you don't wish to dwell. Otherwise, the very same edifice would not be a prison. But nevertheless, even in such a place, the mezuzah can have its effect. How? Simply by discussing the relationship of this place to the mitzvah of the mezuzah. Thus, by doing that, this particular prison was in some way transformed. In a backdoor, inverted way, the light of the mezuzah had made its way into the inferno of Spilerno. It became no longer just a prison. It became a detail in a commentary to a mitzvah. And indeed, the commentary is not as simple as it seems. A lavatory is a place where you are not permitted to boast a mezuzah because bringing it there would be a dishonor to the sanctity of the scroll. A barn does not require a mezuzah, since it's a home for animals, not people. To which was the rabbi comparing the prison? Perhaps to both. Alternatively, perhaps the barn, as some suggest, is also not a permitted place for a sacred scroll. At any rate, the essential point is empowering. If even in the hell of Spilerno, one could bring the divine energy of a mezuzah with a few words of Torah then certainly there couldn't be any place on earth in which we are not empowered to reveal the divine as long as we have the dignity and the courage to do so.